So, welcome everybody. Yeah, I'm really happy to welcome you to this uh, online event, Confronting Racism with Mindfulness, the inner work of racial justice. The basic idea that we want to tease out together, Rhonda and myself, is this problem of racism. Very clear that this is something that causes incredible harm. How to work with it through mindfulness and from a Buddhist perspective. But before I get started, first of all, on behalf of Rhonda and myself, I would like to express a little bit of gratitude, if I may. William, thank you for organizing this. BCBS staff, thank you for making this possible. And all of you, thank you for coming. The very fact that you're logging in here, spending the time with us, means that you are agreeing with us that this is an important topic, and that you're agreeing with us that it is meaningful to look at what mindfulness can do, what the Buddhist perspective maybe can offer to face such a pervasive and systemic harmful thing as racism. This alone is a source of joy for me. Yeah, it is. I really appreciate it. And I should tell you that if you have any questions regarding technical support, to please send an email to contact at buddhistinquiry.org. If you have questions about contents, I am asking you to please kindly hold them for the time being. Uh, I have so many questions to Rona that I'm not sure if you're going to get a chance. But if you get a chance, I'll let you know. <laughs> and the basic idea of what we are planning to do here together now is precisely because we think that mindfulness is so crucial, so essential for this type of problem. We start with meditation. What else to do, no? Don't be upset. We're going to talk a lot afterwards, but first there will be meditation. Mm -hmm. The meditation will be led by Rhonda. I think so, maybe 15, 20 minutes of guided meditation. And after that is over, I have uh, studied her book. I think this is uh, about the best book I know about the topic, and I have all these things I want to ask her. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go through and just read out some passages, and then we have a discussion. And as I said, if I see that we are running through the topics very quickly, then I will let you know now it's the time to put some questions into the Q&A so that she can also take those questions. But uh, I'm not sure if I will be giving you that chance. And if I don't, if I just run on with my stuff, I hope you will forgive me. And then towards the end, there will be a short uh, uh, interlude by William just to say a few words, and Rhonda will close us up with a final reflection and meditation. So once more again, thank you so much for coming, and now I'll disappear and leave the stage for Rhonda to guide us in meditation. Mm, thank you, thank you so very much, um, my dear friend, and all of you as well. Thank you all for being here. So inviting a very intentional uh, arriving here together today, so in the ways that may be familiar to you, those of you who have a meditation practice, and for anyone uh, on the, the Zoom or in the Zoom room for whom meditation is new, the invitation is simply to 
bring intentionality to coming into this conversation by sort of engaging in these preliminary pausing, checking in with your intention. What is it that brings you into this conversation? What is it that pausing as we enter into this conversation and grounding yourself in your body, in your, in, in your life in this moment, how might that support you in reflecting together with us this morning on these topics? So pausing to invite a little bit of self-inquiry and then settling into a position that may support you in simply meditating. For me, that may just simply be seated in a chair, feet on the floor, or if you're seated on a cushion in a way that's comfortable for you. Bring your body into that position. And then from this place, really allow a sense of Awareness of the contact between the body and the source of support beneath the cushion of the chair, the meditation cushion, and the floor and the earth beneath that. Just coming gently, gently into awareness of the body being held in this moment. And if you're comfortable resting the eyes in some way, whether closed or just lowering them to allow this moment of creating this space of pausing, holding, resting, resting the mind on the body in this moment. So bringing our attention perhaps further to the sensations of breathing. Picking up on the in-breath or the out-breath, wherever you happen to find yourself in this moment, and then continuing to follow along. Perhaps taking a few deeper than usual breaths for you. If that would help to bring your attention just a bit more to rest on the sensations of breathing. And now perhaps allowing a gentle expansion of the awareness to more fully encompass the body as a whole. So we might do this by really allowing attention not to fully leave the sensations of breathing, but to expand, perhaps shifting the focus on breathing a bit uh, 
allowing that to, to take a bit of a back seat as you bring your attention to the sensations of feet on the floor, body on the cushion, breathing in and out, maybe a gentle scan up through the feet, the legs, the lower and upper torso, just feeling the breath as it engages with the musculature of your breathing, these really important, beautiful organs of life. So breathing in and out, coming up through the, allowing a scan up through the chest, the heart region. Sensing into the quality of the heart in this moment, whether it's feeling in any way open, closed or any feeling of warmth or lightness, really just inviting, attending to this quality of the heart as we breathe in and out, sensing into the care and concern that brings you into your awareness at this moment. It may be more easy for you to sense into the care you bring to the world right now, concerns we have for some of the ways that racism continues to harm others, or it may be some of the ways that you have been suffering in your own life, in your own way. So gently allowing a consciousness now of the desire we bring to our meditation practice to alleviate suffering, discomfort, to experience a bit more ease in how we relate to this life. And as we sense into the care and concern that we bring, perhaps to our own suffering, Perhaps as we think about our own or other suffering, we're seeing the relationship between sense of self, the sense of other, our embeddedness in a world, and the care we have for all, all the ways that we ourselves are impacted in the world and impact others. So if we can bring kindness, really bring a gentle feeling of mm, the warmth the sort of quality of metta, loving kindness. That we bring to these moments of practice and that we might sense extending beyond ourselves into the world, into our interactions with others.
So it may help for you to allow a few phrases. I will repeat a few phrases of loving kindness. And if it helps you to sense into this quality of care for yourself, care for others, perhaps inwardly repeat these phrases, directing them in a way that encompasses yourself but extends to the others on this call, the Zoom, to others beyond the Zoom who may be suffering in ways that we know about and in ways that we can imagine. So if you're willing, you may inwardly repeat after me. Otherwise, you may just imagine extending this wish for warmth, kindness, loving, support from your heart in this moment. May each and all be filled with loving kindness. May we be well in body and in mind. May we be safe. May we be safe from inner and outer dangers. May we, may each and all, all beings be truly joyful, easeful, contented, and free. allowing an embodied sense of the joyful offering of metta of loving kindness that is arising in you in all of us in this moment shifting out of the words and into the embodied sense what it feels like to cultivate this sense of care concern in your heart right here right now in your body Maybe you can just feel a bit of the warmth, a bit of the openness of the heart region softening. And the invitation is to see if you can allow that to expand fully to encompass all of the body, that lower part of the body that we scanned up, up through the heart region and now expanding this sense of warmth, of loving kindness through the chest, shoulders, Arms down, back through the feet, and now sweeping all the way up uh, through the throat region, uh, jawline, head, whole body now, back, back of the head, and down again to the feet. And 
really seeing if possible, you can just feel radiating the sense of your own compassionate, loving kindness. Care for yourself, care for others in this moment. So as we begin to shift out of these moments of formal meditation, the invitation is to just sense into the quality of the experience that is arising in you now. Maybe a word or a phrase comes up if you reflect on what aspect of this practice you might want to carry forward into your presence on this call in this moment of reflective conversation that we'll shift into now. What is it that you might want to carry forward with you as you join with us? What might you carry forward beyond into the rest of your day, your weekend, your very life? When and as you're ready, inviting us to shift from this moment of formal practice into a kind of more informal listening practice for those who are on the call and speaking and sharing practice that I'll share with Bonte and Mom. Thank you. Thank you for your practice. <laughs> oh, feel real like talking now. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Rhonda. The, the first thing I wanted to take up, which is actually not, not a special page in your book, is just your use of the term color inside. It really struck me and it led off a whole train of associations and I would be really appreciative if you could say a few words on what, or even many words on what you associate with that, what, what you're trying to say there. Well, you know, for me, I do think it is, it's a placeholder for the very many different ways we might benefit from, you know, um, practices which may lead to some notion of insight, right? When we think about meditative practices and traditions, we think about the way in which practice itself can be such a deep teacher, right? Yeah. It can teach us so much about um, how it is for us, how we relate to what is arising. And in this dimension of race and racism, I'm using color as a placeholder in color insight, I'm talking about 
really the insights that we might bring to how, how in some sense we do race, right? How it is, um, how it is that we know something about what it means to experience ourselves through lenses of race, to experience others through lenses of race, to be met in the world by this dynamic around race and to witness racism. So it's really an invitation to, to kind of reflect on how we might know more from the inside out something about race and racism. And not only to sense more into the quality, the nature of it, right? When it is arising, right? When there's some, some idea of race is coming up, some stereotype, some way of thinking about another person or being met with some sense that maybe it's coming at us. Um, or it might be in a place, right? You might feel something about the place that in some sense might, might be triggering or, triggering or causing a memory or a, a recollection, remembering of some teaching about who belongs and who doesn't. Yeah. So there are very, very many subtle, subtle, subtle ways, I think, that we carry deep knowledge and training and conditionings and habits and patterns around race and racism. And for me, the term color insight is meant to link, again, these practices for awareness and compassion and, and knowing, right, in a deeper way to this aspect of our experience, our identities, our experience in the world. And so there's a dimension of it that's about practice and seeing things more clearly, more rightly, things that are often somewhat difficult to see We've been trained not to see, right? And so there's also a dimension of that is about a courage, courageous intentionality to see what hasn't been seen, to know a little bit more of the texture, the flavor of these aspects of our experience in the world. Uh, to be able to turn then more regularly toward or lean into, plunge into that aspect of our experience as opposed to you know, going to that fog of indifference, um, confusion, I don't see it, not knowing, amnesia, denial, the very many different ways that we often kind of in ways that are not necessarily easy to see or to be with collude in um, <clears throat> social patterns that lead to harm around these identities. So it's about bringing a deep commitment to practice, a deep commitment grounded in practice, practices like those we just did, practices for deepening awareness and compassion, and bringing that directly to bear on the experience of seeing more clearly, being more courageously engaged with these issues, and then from a place of ethical commitment to how we want to live and act in the world, deepening our <clears throat> commitment to working with others to alleviate suffering around race and racism. So it embeds sort of both awareness um, and action uh, that might flow from that. Beautiful. Yeah, you know, because of my training with the sources, I was, of course, immediately translating it into Pali and Sanskrit and then teasing mm -hmm. these ideas around. And color, Vana in Pali, Varna in Sanskrit is actually the term used for the caste system in, in ancient India. 
and the basic idea, the caste system was not fully developed at the Buddhist time. It was just working into getting what it became later. But the basic idea was that those on top of the system, the Brahmins claimed to be the pure ones with the whiter skin and the only ones entitled to uh, spiritual purification. And so this combination of color inside, because in a way inside the Pasanami is really a key aspect of the Buddhist teaching. But there's this other dimension, which I also try to show in my article, that uh, the Buddha in ancient India was actually really known for standing up against these caste prejudices. That was really, I mean, I, I think I said that in the article, he was not so much known as a meditation teacher or a mindfulness teacher, but as somebody who was opposing caste prejudice. So if we phrase it in modern terms, because he was, he was known for his diversity, uh, for standing up, uh, and very clearly seeing that um, skin color or whatever has nothing whatsoever to do with, with uh, what counts your ethical qualities and then how you develop the mind. And so this uh, color inside term that you have chosen has, has led up a whole train of, of associations which kind of uh, uh, help to flesh it out a little bit more for me from, from a Buddhist perspective because it could really be used to, to pinpoint that, that, that crucial perspective of the Buddha that color does not matter. In that sense, that it does not have anything to say about one's moral quality or one's spiritual abilities, and that the key is inside, to see things with insight, and that is uh, what mindfulness is in the traditional context mainly meant to be. Mm -hmm. So very interesting how this. Yeah, right. This and beautiful, and and and, and thank you so much for sharing that aspect of the the, the early teaching that we see that. Um, you know, the historical Buddha was, you know, not passive about these things, right? Was engaged in, yes, this interior, inner, if you will, dimension of mindfulness, but was also aware, obviously, of what was happening in that social realm that you might call outer mindfulness as well. Yeah. And the pain that comes from it. So the caste system. And I, as you mentioned that, I think about, again, that the way in which this idea of race has particular, you know, kind of flavors and textures in particular contexts, settings and spaces and places. <clears throat> and so when I use that term, I'm kind of pointing toward some dimension of experience that is about um, notions of um, identity based on you know what we look like and where we come from some rough notions and um, and so the precise definition of race or what we what comes to mind when we think about it may vary quite radically amongst all the folks who who the beautiful folks who are on this call and listening to this conversation we may have very different associations with that term and maybe you know tied to the particular regions in the United States where we've lived and the demographics of those regions. And maybe with this call, certainly we probably have people from different regions around the world. And um, the associations that we bring differ so much depending on context. They also have differed over time in different places. So I, the, the dynamism, the, the, the fact that these are not static, ideas or right the, the notion of race isn't static is also I think something that 
for me, this idea of color insight can help us more deeply know and understand from the inside out that we are using these terms, but the, what we're talking about, you know, are aspects of, of the way uh, the social realm has often met and described folks that have, as you said, you know, have no real meaning or permanence, certainly no uh, inherent essence. Uh, and so, it, and, and varies so much on, depending on context in terms of the meaning and the impact of these ideas will vary depending on the context. So that's another way in which I think for me, the lived experience of race uh, invites, you know, a rich kind of uh, meditation and is, and is um, we understand it better. We can understand it better if we bring mindfulness practice to it. Yeah, that's uh, another thing I can really relate to from the early teachings also, this clear awareness that language is just a tool and not something that we should reify. So we should not find the one right definition of racism and not everybody has to follow it. But much rather say it's just a point, it's just a point of patterns of oppression based on birthright, if I say it very simply, something acquired by birth and not by dint of what we do or what we develop. And then, of course, like when I'm bringing in the caste system, I'm not really intending to say caste in India is racism because <laughs> I get it immediately. A lot of my Indian friends say, what are you saying? I'm just saying that there are similarities in patterns, patterns of oppression, patterns of unnecessary harm and restriction of opportunities to, to, to people. And so from the way the Buddha was responding to this, we can simply take inspiration for that to then transpose these teachings into the into the current area to deal with what we have here in our city. Yes. And and I will just simply note that, you know, for many people around the world, we know something about these patterns of, you know, separating the, the communities around us, the, <clears throat> the people around us <clears throat> into sort of subgroups based on these different notions. And so, it may not be the specific language of race and how we think of race and racism in the United States. Yes, it has, you know, some differences obviously with caste and that in that context. And yet, as you're, as you're pointing toward, there are enough kinds of similarities that when we talk about racism, xenophobia, othering, um, identity-based oppression, we can start to have this broad conversation that invites reflection on, just what it looks like where you are um, and where your own lived experience and your own culture experience teaches you a little bit about what it is, what, what it means to have people meeting you with assumptions about who you are and what you're capable of or the trainings we get about how to categorize and identify our in-group and that other group or those other groups and not just how to identify and categorize, but then the values and meanings that attach to them, such that a kind of hierarchy of, of value and respect is sort of being transmitted in these often very, very subtle ways in our cultural spaces and places. So yes, if we can expand our capacity to sort of hold these terms that we're using with, you know, in the, the way that we hold 
all experience through mindfulness. Um, I think that's another way or gift, if you will, that a meditative engagement with these aspects, very painful aspects often in our world, can help us work with them more effectively to kind of give a little bit of space when people are using a term that we're sort of don't feel is quite the term that we would use rather than kind of getting, you know, sort of caught up and stuck and, you know, into that egotistical kind of battle about how we need to talk about this, kind of recognizing that, you know, we're all coming into conversations like this from radically different and differentiated experiences by definition or by necessity or just inherent to what the way things are, we're going to be using different terms. We have so many different associations and things we're drawing on from the place of practices that support us in a kind of heartful, kind, compassionate holding of experience. We can give ourselves and others a little bit more space within which to learn and to meet and to kind of have questions and to grow and to kind of transform even as we engage with this very difficult aspect of our social experience. Yeah, that nearly ties in again with another idea. I don't think I'm going to get to the book for quite some time. We just keep like this. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing is this, uh, this in, in, in Western uh, thought, since uh, ancient Greece, since Aristotle's, we have this binary type of thinking. And this is where this whole discourse on intersectionality now comes. I mean, not in its specific application to racism, that like, for example, you are at the intersection of two trajectories of discrimination, racial and, 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 and because you're a woman. But uh, the whole idea of intersectionality comes off of that clear awareness that this binary type of thinking really doesn't work, this black and white thing. And we don't have it in ancient India, you see. They have a different logic there. And this is something I, I, I this is for example, one of the things what I really think, and I, I don't want people who are interested in working against racism now to feel they have to become Buddhist. That's not at all the point. But I'm saying, look, there is this early Buddhist teachings, and these are, if I'm allowed to say, indigenous in a certain way. They're certainly not Western, they're certainly not white. And there are certain aspects from there that just give a shift of perspective. And so in the early Buddhist teachings, that is already from the ancient Indian setting, we have the so-called tetralemma. Instead of recognizing two, we recognize four possibilities. Yes, no, both, neither. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that very, very, very thing that if it is not yes, it is not necessarily no. Okay. We're like, okay, like you just said, like, okay, this is not my definition of racism, what racism, what racism is. But because the two definitions differ, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to know thump this one down and, and, and smash it in order for mine to be correct. It could be that we are both not correct, and it could be that we are both correct. And we have this, I use usually colors that is more easily because I've had this experience with the students. When I come up with this, they just think it makes no sense. These Indians were just crazy. Logic is either no, no, black and white. Is that really everything we see, black and white? Is there not also black and white together, gray? And is there not also neither black nor white? All the colors. All the colors are lost with this black and white thinking. Yeah. And this type of uh, powerful logic really underpins the Buddhist teachings and underpins also the mindfulness practice. So I think with this with this with this 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 doctrinal understanding that there is another modality of, of basic logic. 
that does not force us into this binary thinking, to this either or. Yes. So this box, and if it doesn't fit in, it has to go into that box. But there's, 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 there's much more space around. And then combining that with the practice really opens up the perspective to seeing, uh, to, to be much more able to have a much more nuanced view. Mm -hmm. this from, from black and white to, 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 to color pictures. Yes. And to be able to position ourselves in such a way that there is not immediately a conflict with all those that disagree. Even if they disagree just a little bit. <laughs> right. Well, and as you say this, it, uh, it makes me think about the way that, again, so on the one hand, I, in this body, in growing up in the United States, <clears throat> you know, and when I speak, you can hear not just the United States, but like the Southern part of the United States. I have, um, I have my language and the way that I pronounce things gives that part away. In that particular context, for you know, really most of my life, um, uh, my experience was that people would meet me and immediately would you know see me as a black woman, right? <laughs> right? There's no there's no ambiguity in the minds of people when they meet me there, and and there is no, you know, maybe that and it, it's just like the, the the application of these sort of categories in the in the context of the U.S. is is you know almost like a kind of a automatic um and 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 you know very sort of discreet like you know you're in this category or, or you're or you're in another and so then we have to have this i right this idea of multiracial or biracial as if again there are these categories and and, and some of us have multiple categories and so there's some on, I'm smiling when I speak about that, and I and I'm and I'm suggesting that there's, I'm suggesting that we might inquire into all of it, but I don't want, but I don't want to be dismissive of it because again, part of what um, I think um, reflecting on this through mindfulness can show is simply that um, there are aspects of it that we meet in the world, and in that sense, as the sociologists would say, have a very real meaning. Like it, you know. So it's one thing to say yes, they're there's, you know, tetradilemmas and there's multiple ways of thinking about it. it's non-binary. And yet when I walk out, you know, my house or let, you know, went back and go, would go back to that neighborhood where I was, the area where I was born and raised in North Carolina and meet people on the street, black woman, like, and, and all of the different ways that um, the association, the meanings of that might make me vulnerable to harm, discrimination, disrespect, you know, being treated as being suited for certain things and work in the world, but not others. So all of, so there, so, so that's another aspect of what I think is really important, especially in a kind of a practice context to name that there are, there is this nuance around the, you know, the experience of, you know, my experience, um, in this body is is not to say that there isn't some concrete reality to the impact of the, this notion, whatever these notions of race are and the kind of stickiness of something called blackness, right? There is a way in which, you know, in the context of the United States, but not only in the United States, you know, I've had the privilege of traveling around the world, not, you know, 
not as much as I might have liked, <laughs> but to Europe, to South Africa, to you know, south of the, the U.S. border. <clears throat> and while, again, if the way in which we identify and categorize and make meaning around these ideas varies, there's some enough sort of similarity. That's why I sometimes use the word stickiness around the idea of what, you know, what blackness represents and how relative to something called whiteness, right? There has been a, t a worldwide sort of um, set of conditioning, training, deep teaching about the relative um, value of black life versus let's say white life and and not to distinguish only those two, but just to sort of name those two aspects on kind of a worldwide conversational, um, cult, let's say a hierarchy, if you will, of meaning around so-called race. And, and and again, that's not static, but just to say that, um, you know, those most powerful nations <clears throat> through the period of <clears throat> colonialism, enslavement, um, transmitted a lot, a lot of deep, 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 deep teachings about the superiority of, of whiteness relative to other races. And again, I know there are other superiority conceits or superiority notions out there, um, but that particular notion of, of, of white supremacy, just to kind of link it back to the United States context right now, we're seeing a re-arising of that. And I'm just wanting to name that while Yes, there are these nuanced ways of thinking about race. There's at the same time, these very concrete realities that are about the heightened vulnerability that a black racialized person in this context will feel. And so sometimes when we point toward the nuance and the way in which there's sort of not so much meaning there, not so much there there as we are given to believe, we can then kind of relax our interest in seeing the actual harm that's still being done by these ideas. And, and I'm, not, I'm not here for that. I'm, I'm definitely here for the both and around that too, if that makes sense. Again, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the, the point of uh, the, the clear recognition that we have developed uh, since the post-enlightenment period in the West of subjectivity and of the lack of foundation of particular religious truth claims has gone a little bit overboard. It's gone overboard into throwing out truth and making everything just a subjective construct. And that uh, runs the risk, as, uh, if I understand you correctly, precisely the risk of no longer being able to acknowledge the actual instance of suffering that's happening. No longer actually being able to face it, and even like it becomes all wishy-washy. And I think there's again, I mean, the uh, early Buddhist teachings, I almost feel like I'm promoting early Buddhism too much. <laughs> Stop me if I'm getting too much. But the thing is that the, the, the construction of experience is very clearly recognized in the teachings. The fact that uh, uh, there cannot be real objectivity other than recognizing my subjectivity. Because I am constructing experience. At the same time, there's a very clear truth concept. And that truth concept is not based on an entirely religious belief claim is simply that there is the path of practice which mindfulness is central that leads to nirvana and the nirvana experience is an experience of deconstruction it's a stepping out of the constructing of the world and be able to see it as it really is and so this is a reference point for a conception of truth that can coexist with the understanding of the pervasiveness of subjectivity 
and the degree to which we construct experience. And I think it's really important for us to hold both, to see, yes, yes, social construct, subjectivity, etc., but not to go overboard and then, 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 then miss out that there is a reality below our construction. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, these ways of bringing mindfulness-based insight and practice to the ex aspect of our experience in the world that travels with this idea of race and racism and bias. <clears throat> in my experience, inviting um, folks to stop and pause and reflect, you know, think of a time when you've been confronted with a stereotype or, or even just think what happens when you're invited into a conversation with folks you don't know to talk about race and racism. What are some of the things that happen in the body? What associations come up? What stories come up? What feelings, emotions? When we stop and pause and allow ourselves to inquire about that. And we find ourselves, if we're closely willing to really see what there is to see, we can begin to see some of the ways that we, in fact, construct experiences around knowing and not knowing race, we're leaning in, we're leaning out, we don't know anything here, we can't remember, or wait, no, I remember that joke, I remember that training, I remember that time when I was in, you know, <clears throat> as a young child, perhaps, bringing a, a, a classmate home when my parents, when the child left made this joke about, well, we want to make sure we still have all the knives and, you know, the silverware. Implication being that a child from that background is a child we might not be able to trust not to steal from us. Or simply don't bring that child in. Or actual physical violence because of the association of you know, that someone, I have, I, I'm, I'm, by the way, now reflecting on just a few of the so many different stories. <clears throat> and I want to apologize. My voice tends to do this when I feel like I'm speaking about things that matter. There's so many different stories if we pause and invite them. And if we do that right now with those that are in this listening space, think of the ways that we know something about race and racism. And we know something about the way we've been taught to think of others through lenses, if not race, some other identity that's about our group versus theirs and some inherent values. And permission to disrespect and disregard a group because of those identities. What are those stories? Where, what did it come as a joke? Was it, was it a, a loved person that you respected in your family that taught you something? When we create space for sensing what we carry around these things, leaving as, the, as best we can judgment aside, as best we can, just to see if we can know what there is to know. And we pause long enough with it. And we can begin to unpack it a bit, if you will. This, in a way, is both maybe noticing some of the ways that these notions have been constructed in us and that we have maybe participated in constructing some of these ideas. But as we pause together and really 
look and the texture and flavor and the way we cling and the way we get want to be confused and deny feel the emotional attachment. As one of the participants in one of my workshops said, ah, wait a minute, I've heard all of these years about how we construct race. In this, I'm feeling the deconstruction of it right here, right now. So yeah, that's, I think what I, that aspect of the practice dimension is also what I wanted to bring to the conversation because um, for me, that's where we really have the potential for personal healing and interpersonal um, learning, growing, transformation, um, waking up, thawing, right? So much can happen if we can create more of this sort of, let's say, mindful holding of what we already know, what we've seen about race and racism. So much can happen in terms of like deepening our capacity to, again, just keep sitting with these unfortunate aspects of our experiences and learning more, but also in the direction of healing from some of the ways that we have been wounded, um, disconnected from each other. Um, socially, we've, we've sort of gone through social suffering, if you will. Um, and we've created a world in which uneven distribution of resources makes some groups and people more vulnerable to suffering than, than seems fair and right. So for me, mindfulness can be a way of creating more space for seeing what there is to see at many different levels and then being able to act to, to, to do what we can where we are to minimize the various aspects of suffering that can come up around these aspects of this. Yeah, I can uh, myself uh, testify to the efficacy of your approach because I mean, I've been reading quite a number of books on this topic and it is your book that has really started uh, something happening with me because at first, you know, I mean, I'm being brought up in a very specific kind of setting in, in Germany, in a very Catholic kind of setting where the whole hierarchy was up to the uh, priest, the Catholic priest there in the area. He's just like a, nobody a political or economic can match him. And uh, close by there was an education institute for training priests and they were getting people from Africa, from Uganda and uh, other places and they were getting trained. And so these would then come into the local parishes to uh, give the mass when the local priest was sick or on holidays. So my first encounter with uh, somebody with uh, black skin was the local priest, which is like on top of the hierarchy. And then, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a church, but uh, there's this ritual and then you go in front and then the priest gives you a piece of uh, bread to, to, to. And so the childhood associations that I have with black color are quite different from what I think I would have gotten if I'd grown up in the United States. They have this more like a sense of awe and respect if somebody has black color. And so because of that, I have thought uh, for quite some time that this racism problem, uh, it's not really my problem <laughs> because <laughs> I don't, I don't, I mean, 
I don't, uh, I don't, my, my mind doesn't operate in that way. But then coming here, first of all, of course, recognizing that the mere fact of whiteness makes me privileged and I have to take responsibility for that. But in particular, when I read your book, I saw Nick be connected because saying that I had this uh, experience in my childhood, of course, doesn't mean German are not racist. I mean, Holocaust is the most horrible racist crime, I think, of the whole history of humanity. And it brought up all the pain I have about my German identity. And it was strong pain. <laughs> it really came boom. It came out as she was uh, walking with our common friend, Joan Scott. And she, she kind of supported me in that. And I, I, and I had completely like uh, uh, left this aside from my childhood, from my way of trying to come to terms with this absolute horror. And from then on, I was always having a you know, problem with being German, trying to even pretend not to be German, and preferably not speaking German, <laughs> all this stuff. It's all related to that point. And it is because of the invitation that you made in your book to explore that with mindfulness that that stuff finally could come up. And now I can talk about it without getting, getting, <laughs> or start crying or something, but just uh, to, to see that the total, from a totally unexpected part, my own personal uh, experience with racism would come up and create such a, such a repercussion. That was really mindfulness and that was what uh, precisely the approach that you're presenting. So I can I can testify to the efficacy of that. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> so thank you, because what you're sharing is just so I think. Um, wow, it's um, what I hear and what you're saying. One of the things I hear is, again, there are there are very many ways that um, any one of us might be carrying some trauma around race and the cultural um, legacies of racism that we in some way imbibed. And it may not be so obvious how this is impacting us. And so just to hear your testimony there, your sharing about how in your own experience, there was this aversion, right, to, right, that was tied to the way in which the association with German identity and relationship between that and the horror of the Holocaust was just something you just, I think bringing awareness to that kind of pain, right? The pain of association with oppression. I think in, in the U.S. context, there is this awareness that there can be, you know, shame or guilt associated with whiteness. And, and, you know, huh. there are few things, I think, the social psychologists would tell us, few things more toxic than unprocessed shame. I mean, we really need to find ways to allow um, just to allow, first of all, to, to allow spacious um, recognition that that may be part of these dynamics of fear and othering, right? What is behind the resurgence of patterns of, you know, the appeal of white supremacy, white nationalism in the United States? If we are not able to create a space for acknowledging ambivalence or pain or the, the feeling of, you know, wanting to reject 
whether the memory of or the association with, those feelings don't necessarily go away. They might attach to something else. They might, you know. So I think part of what I've seen in this work, so, you know, you know, Bonte, I've been um, teaching and creating space for conversations about race and racism for more than 20 years. And so there's just been just thousands of moments and, and reflections around different, very, 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 you know, it's 10,000 differentiated ways that we um, human beings that I've come in contact with know something about race and, and, and have been carrying some, maybe some woundedness that has been more or less obvious, more or less acceptable to name, more or less able to talk about with people around me. So for example, in the place where I've been teaching at my, at my university, you know, I've not infrequently had students come to my classes and say, Phew, this is the, one of the first places where I've ever really been able to just talk about this aspect of my experience. My parents are kind of ashamed. They don't want to talk about it. Or, or, or they had so many wounded, wounding experiences that they feel, you know, to not talk about it is to make me stronger. Either way, we're not able to process and be with this part of our experience. And to me, that is one of the gifts of mindfulness, that it can help us just create a capacity to, to, to kind of um, notice how we're relating with those aspects of, of who people say we are or were, who our people were or are, how are we really relating to that? And once you start to notice some of the hidden aspects of that relationship, then we can maybe deepen our insight about how to relate more rightly, more, um, you know, in a more nurturing or transformative or healing way with those experiences. And, and I think it's so important to do that because people are still suffering today because of the inability to find a place where they can really explore these aspects of their experiences. Our children are suffering. Again, they're coming to me and saying, you know, I didn't have a place. I grew up in a beautiful, safe environment where the only people who wanted to talk to me, you know, white racialized young men, I'm thinking of one who recently came to me and said, only people who wants to talk to me about racism and whiteness are people who want me to be racist, who want me to see myself as better than, want me to join the new cause of, you know, white grievance. No one else wants to talk to me about like what it means, how I, you know, what this race, racial experience has meant, what my, you know, what my responsibilities are. And so we need spaces for healing and for just feeling our way back into a heartful well, back into <laughs> feeling our way into heartful, what I, the Martin Luther King tradition that links in some ways my, you know, beloved community. We, we can't really get there in a trustworthy way by skipping over these things. You know, I mean, many of us are too defended and fearful to kind of really feel vulnerable with each other and, and feel our hearts opening and softening unless we know that, you know, somebody's willing to acknowledge or turn toward these aspects that we've been trained not to see. We need some of us 
for safety, right? To know that this is a conversation we can have. This aspect of our experience is not going to be something that you're not going to allow us to see, if that makes some sense. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense, in particular in this uh, uh, whole guilt kind of question, because that's again something we don't really have in Buddhism. And when while you were talking, I was realizing that my own difficulty with being German has a lot to do with this kind of guilt feeling, even though, I mean, of course, I was born, but that is not the question, but it is this, for me, it is the methodology, the, 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 the way they did it, you know, like, in this gas chambers, I went to see that, and this is just so, it's just so absolute, this, this perfectionism, there's something very German about it. And this feeling that I also have that, and then participate in, and guilt, yeah, of course, I've been brought up as a Catholic, so that kind of comes up very naturally. And that in the in the early Buddhist teachings, we don't get this idea of guilt. I mean, even like we monastics, like uh, if I have uh, broken uh, a minor rule, I simply uh, inform somebody else. It's avikaruti, I just make it open. But it's not like a guilt confession and then I'm being forgiven. And to step completely out of this myself feeling guilt and then perhaps because of that wanting to dish out guilt to others <laughs> because that easily happens <laughs> I'm bad so I give it to you also and to completely step out of this guilt kind of thing and see that this this is this is just not a very helpful state of mind to productively process problems acknowledge where there are shortcomings and wherever is possible, we make up for it, but not out of a kind of guilt uh, a paradigm that is informed by the idea of guilt and, and sin or whatever it is. And then the other thing that I also really liked what you said about relational, this is what I always tell uh, those who meditate with me, that it's uh, in the end mindfulness is about how we relate to things, even to our meditative experiences. It's not about having this experience and then latching onto it, but how do you relate to it? What does it do? How does it transform you? And so this relational dimension, not in the sense of not promoting that everybody has to live in a community. I mean, I'm a, I'm a loner. I really like to be alone. <laughs> I would be <laughs> putting problems in my own path if I would not be going, like, everybody must be in a group. That's not the point. And I always say it's like the trees out there. Some trees grow in a group. Some trees stand by themselves. So that's fine. But the, the, the relational dimension of mindfulness. And this is something I feel... Yeah, I really feel that in when I was my my my, my Buddhist upbringing is in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, that was so much more more evident and clear. Like uh, the, the, that, we we were interested in meditation. I had my meditation center, but the fact that outside people were hungry could not just be ignored. People all at the same time doing social activities. It, you you can't do otherwise. And this is something that has uh, puzzled me since coming to the coming back to the West as a sort of self-identified Sri Lankan Buddhist, if I may call myself, that this, this kind of division, either you meditate or you look at problems in society. And it's not really, there's not much ground in between. And then specifically with mindfulness, that even though the instructions are internal and external, it is particularly with MBSR, MBIs, the whole research, it's really on the internal. And to me, that is... 
I don't quite see how this can fully function. I mean, I, okay, when I'm doing my retreat and I'm sitting there and I really don't want to like look and hear and I'm within myself, but as I am growing this basic quality of open receptive presence, when I'm stepping out of my cushion, I, 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 I must be noticing things happening outside and I must be noticing how I relate to things and people and things. And so to, to in my understanding this external dimension, this relational dimension, this bringing in racism, climate change, whatever it is, to, this, this is all part of mindfulness practice. Yeah. It's an integral part of it, it should be. Thank you. I think that's one of the things that resonates so, so much uh, with me, with your work. I mean, I see that, I see that kind of, that which to me is so clear that, that this pra these practices, yes, they have a foundation in personal agency and the decision and the will and the intentionality around practicing and developing awareness. But it has such an obvious aspect of relationality about how we relate to everything, everything, absolutely everything. So that, of course, it relates to, it, it can help us with issues around social identity bias, uh, intersectional with race and all the other isms and schisms that cause harm and suffering. And of course, it invites us to look at our responsibilities for the climate and the planet, the footprints that we leave. So I'm curious um, if there's a, if there was anything in the book, <laughs> we're quickly not, we're quickly moving through our time and we haven't really talked about, we've talked about the book in some way. We haven't had to necessarily. Well, I mean, I, I, you see how many things I've marked? <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to have another session for the book <laughs> because someone is just flowing along so so naturally. So that's also okay. I mean, I um, because I have a whole I, I've built it all up like with the <laughs> from one thing to the next, and maybe it's not so meaningful to, to, yeah. to insist on that. As it's just flowing naturally, it's just flowing naturally. It's also fine. Perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. This is good enough. But uh, I, I fully agree with you on this this uh, dimension of mindfulness, and this is not to overstep. Also, it's not to say mindfulness is intrinsically political or something of that kind. Uh, it's just that that, and, and I think it's, and this is again where I think my my tetralemma is really very nice. We don't get this binary thing: either you are active or you are a meditator, but we get this spectrum, and everybody is fully entitled for herself to decide, I want to position myself more here or more there. Because the question is not how much we are running around outside or how much we sit on the cushion, but if we are developing these two dimensions of mindfulness in tandem, the interrelationship. And then one enforces the other because with the, by meeting the challenges in the outside world, stay, standing up for our values, like for uh, against racism and, and, and for maintenance of living condition on this planet, then becomes really an embodiment of our ethical and meditation practice and becomes a testing ground also for us. How can I face those who are not only on the other side, but actually responsible for harm? How can I face them without joining the level of mind that stands behind such active actions? 
that, because that's always likely we see, I mean, don't really want to talk about climate change, but it's just something I know a little bit more than about racism, but we see the destruction being done and then there's an easy reaction of like hatred. These people, they're destroying our future. And the same can be with racism. But because, and I think you would agree with me, the social evils we have are all rooted in the root poisons in the mind, hate, greed, and delusion. And so when I want to oppose what has been done by hate, greed, and delusion, I have to take a firm stance. But I have to take a stance that does not involve generating those very same emotions within myself. Yes, yes. And who? Thank you for um, pointing toward this aspect of of experience around all of this, the, the temptation to respond to othering with othering, right? Um, and this too, I mean, for me, all of this, I, I, in my own experience, work to to bring a kind of humility toward all of this because I kind of know I'm a lifelong learner and, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I, I, I personally feel that um, partly because the human experience is such a poignant one. Like it's just, I mean, it, if we're in the world at all, it's for me at least really hard not to see how I can get caught and be a as you know, in some sense, a part of the problem, and even even in those moments when I'm trying to be a part of the solution, and um, and so and I, and I and for me though, once I if I can see that in myself and not reject it and not judge myself for having some internalized bias because like all human beings in a world, I too have gotten these kinds of conditionings about who matters and who doesn't and how to, you know, who, who's safe to be around and who isn't. I've, I've, I've had, you know, I've had those trainings just like everybody else. And so I've had to work to kind of, um, and, and not just had to work, I still have to work to disrupt what I feel are the ongoing trainings that are inescapable in our culture and different cultures around the world. We're constantly being bombarded in ways that are obvious and not obvious with notions of who matters, whose voices matter, whose experiences are better and you know preferred. And therefore huge swaths of people we can just disregard their suffering because for this or that rationale, sometimes it's race, it could be class, it could be you know immigration status, uh, disability, et cetera, et cetera. We know all the different ways we're being trained to disregard and disrespect others and to, frankly, not care about their suffering. And so it, race to me is one aspect, race and racism is one example of a kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the social processes by which we categorize and then organize a society um, to enable right a privileging and oppression, right, patterns of access to resources and denial. And we see it all over the place with the pandemics that we're living. So there's certain communities are suffering more. And, and there's a racial balance to that. Um, 
the black communities, the brown, the native indigenous communities are suffering more in the United States context than others. They're having higher rates of coronavirus. They're dying more frequently. That's just one example. And the hard question for me, a person like me, is how am I a part of that problem? Not just how am I maybe a victim and how can I help you see that I may be more vulnerable than you may be. And even though that is part of the truth. Another part of the truth is I am also part of these systems by which you know, we are training each other and other people all the time about who's, who va- who's valuable. And so I'm part of elite educational systems, for example, that systematically kind of renders certain people less important. Or I'm part of, you know, economic systems. I'm certainly part of, as much as I think of the other person doing the climate distress you know, I drive a car. I, you know, do different things that I know may contribute to climate distress. So uh, this is all to say that for me, humility, um, a t- to me, there's a certain way that even as we try to make a positive difference, which what I think must do, I mean, you know, the if karma or whatever right action means, we must keep trying to minimize harm in the world. Even though we will fail, maybe if we have high, high expectations of perfection, and even and therefore we need to kind of resist the idea of like we're either beyond needing to try because we need to defend the fact that we've already, you know, we're we've evolved, right? Or that we're so, you know, there it's all so messy and it's all so messed up. There's nothing we can do. A right relationship with all of this is to say, for me anyway. Every day I want to minimize suffering in the world in all the different ways that I might in my own little, like my own little self, whatever I can do, I want to minimize suffering. I'm, and yet I'm not going to be perfect. And there will be ways that I will mess up and need to apologize and need to try and make amends and need to do better the next moment, the next time, the next uh, engagement. So it's that to me, that's where the equanimity comes in. That's where the compassion comes in. That's where the love and kindness comes in with creating a kind of way of being with the fallibility, right? The inevitable mistakes that we're going to make, the harm that we will do, even as we try every day for me anyway, given my own personal commitments to do better, to minimize harm. Yeah, I, I, it resonates a lot with me. It's very beautiful what you say. I, I fully agree on the importance of humility. It's just that this 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 vision of these overarching systemic systems where I cannot help being part of, they can, for me at least, they can sometimes be a little bit suffocating and uh, rather lead me in the direction of uh, then what's the use, you know? Right, exactly. And this is a this is a problem that I then approach from the Buddhist perspective and say that the key factor is intention, intentionality. So there is uh, 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 some uh, harm that uh, I am not doing intentional, 
and I cannot avoid. There's harm that I'm not doing intentionally that I can avoid, and there's harm that I'm doing intentionally and can avoid. And these are different categories, and it's the last one that is really the most important one, that I am really working on the level of the mind, and this is why I I like to look at bases when climate change, all of this, I like to look at this in terms of mental defilements and and, and the, the manifestation of what this can lead to and me working against them. And then it is easier for me to to have the, the, the joy and inspiration to, as you so beautifully said, every day stand up and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something against suffering because then there is, uh, I, I get more agency. I think that's the point. And it is not that I, I ever think I will be perfect. And it is also not that I'm taking like monocausality and think I'm now responsible for everything. I'm going to save the world or something like that. But there is an area in which I can bring about change. And that's my own mind. And from there, it then will percolate uh, to the outside world. But how it will percolate to the outside world is outside of my sphere of control. I can only try to do it in such a way that it seems to me meaningful and probably having an effect. But the important thing for me is I don't depend on the result. I stand up, embody my ethical integrity and my beliefs, no matter whether it's going to change the situation or not. I don't depend on that. I try to do it in such a way that it stands chances, depending on just the, uh, doesn't matter. But I don't want to make myself dependent on uh, is it still meaningful to work against racism? Look how pervasive it is. Is it still possible to change climate change? This is not a question for me. The question for me is there's something wrong here. And I want to stand up. Mm -hmm. And that stands in itself. But the force of the, the force is not the right word. The inspiration for me to do that comes from working in terms of my own mind and other minds and intention. See that centrality of intention. In, yes. in, in every situation. What is the intention? Yes. Was, yeah. Yeah. I, that resonates very much. And I would say for me, I probably also lean into that, um, that compassionate, yeah, the compassionate desire to, ah, at the, at the very, you know, at the end of it all, stay, grounded in my the love that inspires me. So yes, I want to try to alleviate suffering. And I and I want to be able to feel some of that in this moment, in how it is that I am working to alleviate suffering. And in how it is that I hold, you know, myself in relationship to others as we work. So I, I think it's the, for me, it's the intentionality and then there's a quality of heart that for me, I use the term in my work, personal justice. You know, it's trying to turn, point toward that quality, that aspect that's about how we are with all of this in our hearts. And the sense for me that at the end of the day, all of this is motivated by love, the desire to, in some sense, feel in that kind of right relationship that, that is manifest by the sense of of care, deep care that includes all of us. So well, I'm mindful of our time here too. I was just thinking once again, this has happened already before that sometimes we seem to be saying something slightly different and then we tease it out. We, find, <laughs> we 
singing on the same plane. <laughs> yeah, you're right. My prophet, time exactly. Time is over. Time is running out. Time mm-hmm. over to William now. And, uh, I think it's very easy for me. Uh, it's very easy for me to apologize to all those who have been here for not taking their questions because I got my questions also not answered. <laughs> so we're in the same boat. <laughs> I had like, I mean, I, I love reading the book, but I had really like prepared myself as question one, question two, <laughs> so I would have all this material that I can work through. And I, we, we, we we covered the most important point, but it just it just went by itself so naturally. We can use the material in the retreat that we'll do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thanks to all of you, and specifically thanks to, to Rhonda for, for being with me and uh, let us have this beautiful conversation. And with that one, I step back and hand over to you. So, thank you. Rhonda and Venerable Analyo, thank you so much. Rhonda, you were just talking about a quality of heart and being motivated by love. And I imagine I speak for many of us who just watched and listened and attended to your conversation. And what I felt was that quality of heart and that motivation of love. And the way you're able to speak directly to such challenging and painful issues, but holding a multiplicity, being able to have understanding for so many different experiences and languages and perspectives around race and racism. And I do feel that your practice for both of you really informs that capacity to hold and the love that underlies that. So let me start just by saying thank you so much. I should also say we have had a lot of really insightful, really great, great questions, and even some requests for a second conversation that could address some of those and um, I would love to make that possible. And for those of you who are inspired by this conversation and the way that Rhonda and Venerable Analyo are exploring these issues, I invite you to put on your calendar Friday, May 14th through Sunday, May 16th when Rhonda and Venerable Analyo will indeed have a three-day online retreat titled Mindfulness and the Inner Work of Racial Justice, which will explore these issues directly related to Rhonda's book and the teachings and practices that we do. So, um, thank you so much for the generosity that you have offered us, the generosity of teaching the Dhamma. And thank you also for the generosity of so many of you who are listening to have um, made some offerings when you registered. We are going to end with a dedication and some final words from Rhonda, but let me just say a couple words about how teachers and institutions like BCBS operate. We operate on a Donna basis often and while we charge for some courses for a course like this, we share the generosity of the teachings and we invite you as an expression of generosity 
also to make an offering to BCBS. This is how Rhonda and Analia's teachers were supported and their institutions and their teachers and their teachers and their institutions all the way back to the time of the Buddha. The moving and inspiring tradition and many of us may be facing certain kinds of economic challenges now and you should feel no pressure. I hope that this conversation inspires all of us to work and provide what we can generously in many ways. And I also invite you, if it is something that feels comfortable to you, to offer something to support this kind of work. We will be sending out an email in the next day or so. There will be a link that you can follow. So again, thank you so, so much and for this, for all your attentive listening and for your loving and heartfelt sharing on now. Well, thank you very, very much again, William and everybody who is here. We are going to gently, I guess, close this session, but I often think that we're never really closing or ending these conversations about these things that matter. We're just pausing and we're going on with our day. But the questions that you raised, I'm going to um, see that we hold those questions that I get a chance at least to um, reflect on the questions that we didn't get a chance to answer. And if there is some way that um, that we can in a, another place, again, you can reach out to me. Um, you'll see in the chat a way to contact me through my web page. I am more than willing to stay in conversation with those who've taken the time to be with us on this call. So we'll close with a bit of intentional coming to a place of uh, a short meditation, feeling again the bodies in this moment, points of contact with this ground, the support provided for us, whatever we're going through, the difficulty that may be coming up, there may have been difficult emotions that came up as you Listen to the conversation as you reflected on your own experience. It may help to place one hand or two over the heart as I am doing right now. Inviting again this conscious, compassionate holding of your own experience. And from that place, sensing into the compassion, the care that we would extend to all who are suffering in this moment whether because of issues of race and racism or for other reasons, seen and unseen. So taking a conscious breath in, feeling what is well and caring and the sense of connectedness. As we sit here in this moment, all of us sharing this one earth. So breathing in that sense of connectedness, breathing out the sense of well-being that we extend to ourselves and to others, feeling the radiation of the kindness, the love that will 
if nothing else, perhaps inspire us to continue to live in ways that make manifest our commitment to minimize as best we can the suffering first within ourselves, but not, not only for ourselves, the suffering in our midst. Thank you all so much for taking the time to be here. May you be well, may you stay safe physically, safe from inner and outer dangers at this time. May you be truly joyful, peaceful, and free. Thank you so much for your practice and for your time today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.